Welcome back to Premier Sports Academy guest speaker series brought to you by Sportscraft Source for Sports. Okay, guys, um, welcome back. Episode number 12 of our guest speaker series for Premier Sports Academy. And today joining us from New Brunswick, um, Canadian hitting legend, Canadian Baseball Hall of Famer. I know Scott Crawford wanted me to put that in there in the bio. Um, so uh, Matt Stairs joining us. Matt, uh, how are things in New Brunswick? Probably about the same as in Newfoundland. White. Yeah. Still yeah. some snow, still some rain, and we're waiting for this uh, virus to get over so we can get up and play some baseball. Yeah. Definitely. It's uh, – yeah, it's it's uh, definitely different being on the East Coast. We had a gentleman on yesterday from Peoria, Arizona. So, I mean, uh, he's sitting outside the sun. And now we've got somebody back on that we're a little more comfortable speaking about weather with, right? So, um, but yeah, uh, so guys, uh, again, Matt Stairs. Um, so, Matt, I'm not going to get into your career. A lot of our viewers uh, know your career from Canadian baseball, Major League Baseball, um, but I'll let Ryan kind of jump into some questions that we have for you and uh, we'll get the conversation started here. No problem. Yeah, yeah I just want to start at the, the beginning. Talk a little bit about your minor baseball career, you know, where you grew up playing baseball. Most know you're from New Brunswick, but kind of what town you played in, what, what path that you kind of got on that ultimately led you to the point where you played in Major League Baseball. What did that road look like for you? Yeah, I mean, I think it was it was typical. I mean, uh you know, I played all the minor league baseball here in Fredericton, New Brunswick. Um, you know, you, you you play baseball to get ready for hockey. You know, basically, I mean, it's, it's a, it was a pastime, and I wanted to, you know, play as many games as I wanted in baseball. Uh, you probably played about 15 games in Fredericton, 16 games at the time, and then, you know, the hockey started again. But I uh, suffered a knee injury in hockey, decided to start, you know, pursuing baseball. And, and I think the, the, the best thing that happened to me was I moved away. Uh, my senior year in baseball went to Vancouver, you know, and then joined that National Baseball Institute, which had all the top prospects through Canada. And I uh, really just took off from there and had an opportunity. So, you know, playing here in Fredericton was, was, was great because there's, you know, tremendous coaches and stuff, and uh, they take their baseball very serious, that's for sure. Yeah, and I guess that's a, a really good point that I, th I think everybody probably in this country wants to know the answer to it. Why is it that New Brunswick, with a population that's, you know, not a whole lot bigger than Newfoundland's right. can continually compete on the national stage. Is it something in the water? Is it the culture <laughs> of baseball? Is it, you know, the, the water that's in the, we'll say the red tide there. And what, what is the yeah. reason for New Brunswick's competitiveness? You know, it's a, it's a good question. And, and Paul Hornibrook, who was the uh, president of minor league baseball here for many years, we talked about it all the time, the, the talent we had in New Brunswick, um, it just, it carried over so well. It didn't matter if you were playing, you know, U12, 13, 15, 17, or even senior baseball. Um, it's not as if we practice more. You know, I just think that, uh, I, I think in the Brunswick, you know, I think hockey has a lot to do with it, the great eye-hand coordination in hockey and baseball, the two sports. Um, we do play baseball year-round. You know, I just finished doing a clinic in the first of March for four days, you know, from kids that were eight years old to 14 years old. So, you know, there's always clinics going on. We have the domes and stuff. We, we just continue doing a lot of work, and it's it's nice to see that, you know, they take the baseball very serious. I wish I had an answer, really, the number one answer for it, but um, they've always done extremely well representing uh, Team New Brunswick in, in, in the Nationals, and it's great to see. And, you know, the kids are dedicated, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think that's – you kind of hit on a, a few points is the dedication for sure obviously makes a big difference. But you made a note that as long as you can remember, I guess there's been some some form of indoor training with baseball in New Brunswick, whether it was in a soccer field or an old hockey barn. I mean, yeah. can you talk about maybe when was the first time you were training baseball indoors growing up as a, as a kid? Well, uh, if I told you I, I used to go to the barn and, and, and get ready for it, I'd be lying to you. You know, again, I never, I never picked up a batter ball until it was time to play. You know, we didn't really, we didn't really have the thing back in the day. You know, I'm 52 now, so you know, 35 years ago, we really didn't have a facility where we went to a school and they brought up the nets for us and we take our batting practice and throw in ground balls. And you know, the University of New Brunswick has a dome now. Um, that's probably started about the last 15 or 20 years, maybe, uh, where guys go to some schools and. Uh, it's great that the schools donate their time, allow you to go in there and, and pull this 
stream back and take some, you know, live VP. You know, that's what I was doing with the senior ball team this year before the, the coronavirus hit. Um, so for me, I just, I had to have that separation when I was playing hockey. I thought hundred percent hockey. I didn't want any distractions. And then when I started playing baseball, you know, I, I gave hundred percent until the hockey season was over. Then I started to concentrate on hockey again. So I, I kind of split the two up. Um, but nowadays you're seeing that it's overlapping a lot and just not with baseball and hockey, but football and stuff. So I think the dedication is, I hate to say it's not a hundred percent there anymore. It's there. But it's still the, the two sports at the same time. It's tough to, you know, to take your to take your your, your talent to the next peak. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. We've had lots of people on that talked about the importance of being a multi-sport athlete. Right. But to your point, you probably have to pick which season those sports are in. Right. You want to make sure there's not a, a heavy overlap. I mean, can you say in your experience, it's probably true that your hockey made you a better baseball player, and, and vice versa, right? Oh, absolutely. I think, uh, again, the eye-hand coordination, uh, the ability to, you know, I think playing hockey so much, hockey, you have to kind of slow the game down a lot. And I think a lot of people get caught up in baseball where they speed the game up a lot. Uh, they don't know how to step back and, you know, kind of gather your thoughts, slow the game down, uh, slow the pitcher down on the mound. Um, you know, so I think the hockey and the baseball definitely helped me out for sure. I never played football. We never had it in high school. I played rugby, which was awesome because you just got to destroy people. But, um, you know, I think with the hockey and the baseball, it was just – it was great. I mean, you always hear that the announcers on TV, oh, he played hockey, no wonder he's got quick hands, you know, from Joey Vada to Larry Walker to whoever you're talking about. So I definitely think the hand coordination with hockey and baseball is, is tremendous. And, and uh, I just want to take a – it's not really a step back, but, um, again, being signed by Montreal, being signed by a Canadian team, how big was that for you? And close to home, too. I mean, New Brunswick and Quebec being so close to each other. How, how important was that when you were starting your career? Well, you know, I, th I thought it was really cool. You know, I thought uh, when I went to the National Baseball Institute and, and had a chance to represent Canada in the Olympics in 88 over in Seoul, Korea, uh, we toured for three weeks over north, over in, in Italy and stuff it, and then all of a sudden, I thought I was going to sign with the Blue Jays, you know, because our head coaches were from the Toronto Blue Jays organization as scouts or whatever. And then all of a sudden, Montreal jumped in and offered me a contract, uh, you know, a sign-up bonus back then. Um, and it was, you know, it was cool. I mean, saying, hey, this is Montreal, you know, and then all of a sudden you look at the players of Montreal because living in New Brunswick, could we watch? Either the Red Sox or the Montreal Expos. Um, you know, so it was really interesting going to spring training my first year. Uh, that was interesting, uh, nervousing. Yeah, you know, nervous. So I sat down. My 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 locker partner was Jack Clark. You know, here's a, a veteran of so many years sitting down having a cigarette in the locker room. I'm like, holy crap, they smoking here? This is cool. You know, I thought this was unbelievable. But, uh, it was it was quite an experience going in there and and, and trying out for Montreal Expos and um, knowing that there's only been a few players from Canada that played for the Expos. Yeah, and I guess staying on on the topic of of uh, you know going from the the Olympics to to um, the Montreal, um, just a little bit uh, on on your experience. I know you obviously said you went to the Olympics, but you also played a little bit of baseball in Japan. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about the Asian uh, baseball culture that you got to experience? I mean, I lived in in Asia for a little while, working there, so I got to watch the the Korean Baseball League, which was it pretty incredible actually yeah. to see the culture of baseball there and i think a lot of people we've we've talked about linear routes to the pros and i think a lot of people get down if they don't take that straight path to a big d1 school or drafted out of high school right. and straight into the show right just not understanding that there are other competitive routes out there to play baseball yeah i think it was you know it's funny when i was playing for the ottawa Lynx, the triple a team um you know, they, they, they sent over the Asian scouts from Japan and they wanted to find a, a third baseman. And I tried there before and I was, wasn't very good there. I tried to shortstop and they kicked me out in the cow pasture in the outfield. I said, oh, I'd never go to Japan. I want to go to the big leagues. That's my goal. Then all of a sudden they were there for like a four-game series and I ended up having a great series. And they offered me a contract. And I, here I am, you know, playing AAA, making crap in the minor leagues. They offer you a contract to go over and play in the big leagues in Japan, you know, one-way contract. This had a, a brand new second daughter. So for me, it was very, it was a no-brainer, you know, financial-wise to go over and take care of my family. Uh, we went over there. Things didn't work out the greatest. 
probably because they don't have a lot of patience with the Gaijins early in the career. Um, Gaijin being the Americans, which are Canadians, I guess. Uh, but one thing I did learn from Japan was the ability to, to do your work. You know, they, they take their bats home at night. They have to make a certain amount of swings in the mirror before they get drunk or whatever they're going to do afterwards. Um, they love their alcohol. But this, the, the work habits were tremendous. And that's where I'm thinking where I picked up where I averaged 500 swings a day. You know, I would do my tee work. I would do my soft toss. I would do my batting practice. And I would do a routine every day where I was taking 500, you know, swings a day, which was, which was tremendous. And I learned that from Japan. But getting over there and struggling and knowing that, you know what, I need to get back to the States, it kind of made you take that next step where you kind of get hungry again to get back to the big leagues. And now all of your, your work habits carried over to the States, which carried over to the big leagues, which now I didn't want to leave because it was fun. You know, so I think, you know, there was financial-wise and then getting over there and, and doing extremely well working-wise on my, my, my swing, I didn't care about defense. I hate saying that. Uh, I wanted to hit, and I thought if I could hit, I'd get the big leagues, and it worked out well. And I guess you, you when you came back from Japan, you played with uh, Oakland. Is that correct? That was your first uh, stint was with Oakland? No, actually, no. my contract was when I left Montreal to go to Japan. If I came back from Japan, I would get back, put back in the 40-man roster in Montreal. So gotcha, back, okay. Put on the 40-man in Montreal. Pete Young and I got traded to Boston, which I grew up being a, you know, a Red Sox fan. Played a little bit in the Red Sox organization in AAA in the big leagues. And then as a six-year minor league for agent, signed with the Oakland A's. Okay. And so that was kind of where your, your first big break came was with Oakland's when you got yeah. some consistent playing time. In, yeah. And obviously, you know, that's what peaked your career. Can you talk just a little bit about what it was like to finally catch your stride and, and you know, putting yeah. in all that hard work and seeing it pay off? What, what was that like? I mean, I know that had to be very gratifying. It, it was. You know, you know what really helped me out, Ryan, was was – stop listening to other players tell you you can't do that in the big leagues and i had a different swing and i used to you know i used to swing hard and i, and I tried to drive the ball i never thought about hitting home runs back in the day i really thought about trying to drive the ball hitting the ball hard and i had players saying listen you can't swing that way up here you're gonna get drilled so i kind of changed my swing a little bit and then after i went back to minor leagues i'm like you know what you know this is this doesn't make any sense this is who i am uh, once I finally went back to the minor leagues, and once I finally got to Oakland and had an opportunity to play, I started swinging the, the, the bat the way I swung my whole life and started driving the ball, hitting the ball, left field, right field. But i tell you what a key for me was, was watching players hit. You have, I've had 19 hitting coaches. I've played with over 700 ball players. 700 ball players are better than having one hitting coach. Sure. Because you can pick their brains, you can watch how their approaches, you can watch how they get the ball in the air properly, and and that's one thing I just I, I it helped me. I watched Mark McGuire and Jose Canseco and Jason Giambi take batting practice and how they worked on getting the ball in the air and what they did, and it just carried over. And you know, my first year hitting ten home runs and hundred at bats, like this is cool. I fit twelve before and five hundred at bats. Now I'm hitting ten home runs and you know and hundred at bats, and the next thing you know I'm hitting thirty eight and two hundred plus. So it was it was a uh, it was nice. A lot of confidence. And that's sure. the thing you guys know when you get in that batter's box, having the confidence is, is, a, is the number one thing. Yeah, and that's what I was going to get into too with you is just, again, you talked about it just, just then, kind of touched on the approach and having that confidence. And obviously being around, being surrounded by so many uh, great hitters and guys who could yeah. share information. Now when you go back and you're, again, uh, doing hitting clinics, doing – uh, drop-in sessions, talking to athletes. This, um, like, when you're coaching them, uh, what are you? What's one of the main things you're trying to get across? I know that again, we're all built different. Not every kid is going to be able to swing like you did and have the success that you did. Right. One message that you're trying to get across to all these athletes. Well, I, I think it's look. I always tell people hitting is very easy. It's getting hits that's hard. You know, <laughs> and and there's there's two things that you can control when you step in the batter's box is your mindset and your approach. After that, it's done. You know, if I walk into the game and, and I realized that early in my career was I can control what's going to happen with my outcome. I can't control if I'm going to get a hit, if that makes sense. You know, so if I stay with my games down, my strengths, that side of the game I talk to a lot of kids about. Another thing I think very important for me is, is that I think you find too many coaches say, listen, 
you know, no, I want you to hit the ball to left field. That's teaching the kid the wrong thing because you're not teaching them how to hit the ball to left field. Or if you're a left-handed hitter or a right-handed hitter, hit the ball to right field. You know, how many times you see that and all of a sudden they do this and they carve it and they hit a weak fly ball to right field. So when it comes for me teaching, and I, and, I, and I do this with a lot of major league ball players and everybody, is that if I think about, and I don't take this phrase bad, is killing the second baseman or shortstop with the line drive. Yeah, yeah. I don't want them to kill him, of course. I don't want them to hurt him. I'm thinking, but if you think about killing that baseball and driving that ball through the middle of the infield, gap to gap, the ball going the air itself. And that's the thing I, I, that I teach is, is starting with their weakness off a of tee and moving the tee around back to the strength and finding those swings where I don't want to carve the ball to left field as a left-handed hitter. I want to drive that ball through the, the shortstops above, which will get the ball in the air properly. And that's one thing I teach is just the approach and how to drive the ball at the gaps. If you want to teach how to pull, I can do that as well. You know, if you want to hit the ball straight to the left field, I can teach that well. But I think you, you really need to get that area of this way instead of everything working this way or this way for righties and lefties, which you see in Major League Baseball now. Not a lot of hitters you, nowadays can hit from pole to pole. Mike Trout, you know, Cabrera, those guys. So that's what I kind of – that's my approach, and that's my teaching of, of what worked for me and it worked for the success I had with, with players I taught. I feel like just staying on that point where you talked about hitting the ball to a specific place and just kind of slicing it. Um, I, it to me, it's a, a lot like pitching when you're just telling a kid to throw strikes, right? I mean, right. you're not focusing on the intent of the action. I mean, you should be drive the ball hard and you know, hopefully we get it where we want it versus just, you know, flick it in there. I mean, is that something you see or experience when you're working with kids is that it's almost like everything is so – there's so much – thought put into it that you're having to really simplify simplify yeah. a lot of the messaging that you're giving to them. It is. I mean, I think what happens is, especially with, I'll go back to with the pitching, pitching thinks if I hit the glove, I'm okay. How about <laughs> throwing the ball through the glove? Yeah. Let's get through the glove. Well, it's the same thing as when I'm, when I'm hitting, <clears throat> excuse me, learning how to hit off your backside, you know, and learning how to drive a baseball properly, depending on where you want to hit it. It could be left field, right field, wherever you wanted to hit it. And that's the approach that, that kids need to have is that if there's a ball thrown, if I'm a left-handed hitter now, I'm going to talk left-handed, ball's thrown, you know, outer third, why do I want to try to carve it down a left-field line or, or over the third baseman's head? If I still think about getting a barrel out and driving that ball through left center, you're hitting the ball hard. You know, so some smart Alex sat down and said, okay, I'm going to have exit velocity and launch angle. Well, Okay. We thought about for 100 years, when I played hitting the ball hard, which is your exit velocity, and launch line was driving the baseball. So if you have to think about hitting the ball exit velocity and you have to hit the ball with a launch angle, I think there's too much thinking going on. And I'll tell you another thing which is very important is I don't think people realize that your top hand is probably the most important hand in your swing. And I wish I could get up and show you stuff. But when guys take swings and they kind of guide it, but if you tell all of a sudden you yeah. throw that top hand, sure. that's when you end up driving the baseball. And you don't carve it anymore. You're driving the baseball. So it's at that point, that point of contact where everything explodes and the, the wrap of the lower half and the top hand takes involved. You know, all of a sudden now these things get involved and that's where you're driving the baseball. I could talk baseball hitting all day. I really could. <laughs> well, I mean, let's, let's stay there with you. With, with just some of the science you just you <laughs> talked about, you know, when you played, it was how hard did you hit the ball and, and did it did it carry? I mean, uh, the more that I see this, I feel like, you know, these some of these tools like exit velocity and the launch angle, those are really good tools for a coach to evaluate their hitters. Right. But taking all of that information and putting it back in the athlete's head, um, the more I think about it, the more I see it, it seems like it's, it isn't productive, right? They just need to have a feel for what they're doing. And the coach can be the one that's reviewing the data to see if they are progressing and right. getting better with the concepts you're trying to teach them. Yeah. And no, you made a good point. You know, not everyone's the exact same size or have the same bat speed or, or, or whatever. But if I'm, and again, I'm, I'm old school. I like the old school swing. I have nothing against the new school. I think it causes too many strikeouts, but eventually with the, with the new school, you know, they call it what the reverse, Ferris will bat flat, rotate, throw the shoulder. Well, eventually, if everyone's going to be swinging that way, that's what the main goal is, right? You go in and you go to camp and say, listen, 
this is what we're going to work on, you know, boop, boop, rotate. Perfect. Now, all of a sudden, the pitcher figures out one time how to get somebody out. If everyone has the exact same swing, baseball is going to be even more boring to watch than it is now because of the home yeah. runs and strikeouts. Make sense? Yeah. So that's, that's a great thing of having the Tony Gwynn and, and, you know, Dom Mattingly and, and whoever, Fred McGriff, whoever's hitting. They all had different styles to where now the pitcher didn't have one area he could get guys out on. High fastballs. Well, we used to be able to hit the high fastball because we thought about taking our hands to the baseball. Now it's a rotation. They swing underneath it. You know? yeah. and, they all, and they all think about, again, I'm, maybe I'm bashing the new style, but everyone thinks that the, all the home runs are up because of the new swing. It's not because the pitchers don't have c- complete control of the home plate. Back in the day, they had they took the inside pitch or they took the outside pitch. As the hitter, I'm the one against Roger Clemens. I'm not trying to cover both sides. So I'm going to wear one right here off him in my gray beard, which this virus is killing me, so I'm going to shave some bad, but I'm not going to. Anyway, it's just you have to pick a side back in the day. Now they just, these guys are hitting 100 mile an hour fastballs on both sides of the plate. Come on. It's impressive. I mean, I yeah. sit there and go, how do you do it? Yeah. So I know I'm getting. No one tucks it inside anymore. Well, they don't know. They don't, they weren't, they're not taught to. Mm-hmm. If you throw one side to somebody, you almost get hit, then he's going to have a. You know, canary, and he wants to fight somebody, and all of a sudden, what they do? They go back outside, now you have them set up. Come on. Yeah. Let's put Pedro Martinez on the mound back in the day, pitching now. Yeah. Let's see how that would work. That'd be awesome. <laughs> anyway, that's my and, <laughs> and actually, that leads into something that I wanted to bring up as well. For yourself, like, again, having that approach and, like, coming into very tight game situations, you did it your whole career, coming in and pinch hitting, and, I mean – MLB all-time leader in pinch hit home runs. That doesn't happen by fluke. Is it because you studied those pitchers prior to, or did you just have the same approach every t- every single time you went into the game, knowing what you had to do? Uh, I didn't study the pitchers because mm-hmm. I knew you know you'd be around so long. I mean, I've yeah. I've seen everybody. Um, what it is is sometimes year to year you have different strengths, or you might have a different strength, you know, in the first of April compared to June. You know, you might struggle early in June with the fastball inside. So I made the adjustment on the go of where my strength was over the last probably 40 or 50 at-bats, um, which for me, my strength was middle, middle, in. Didn't matter if it was low or up. So as a pinch hitter, what really helped me, and knowing Ron, you guys are going to think I'm crazy, is I never expected to get a hit. Because when I pinch hit and I expected to get a hit, all of a sudden you start squeezing the bat a little tighter. You start yeah. to open up your zone from here a little wider. You start chasing things at pitches that you don't want to swing at. So, again, that's going back to the approach of me t- teaching kids. Hit off your strengths. Like, hit off your strengths. If you're a fastball hitter, why am I going to swing at curveballs early in the count? Easier said than done. I know it is because you get anxious up there. But for me, I knew when I stepped in the batter's box that I could control my approach and what my strengths were. And then after that, I, did, I couldn't control the outcome. If I had a good swing on it, you might hit it hard. You might hit it somebody. But that's that was for me was really, really, it really helped me a lot of not putting a lot of pressure on myself and being more relaxed and hitting off my, I've taken Roy Halday, struck me out the bases loaded one time, three fastballs, corner away, corner away, corner away. And I walked back, not even swinging. Like, well, why did you swing it? He got me. I was looking middle, middle in. You know, yeah, and then I got released, but anyway, that was besides the point. It was loud. <laughs> it, it just that that's just it's something it's, a lot of times it works, and a lot of times it doesn't. You just got to stick with it, and uh, yeah, and that's a good, good point that I just want to kind of hone in on is the approach at the plate. So, yeah. you know, when you got into that position where you were a role, role player when you were coming off the bench. I mean, I would say you would you would attribute your success in that role was to the fact that you had an approach and, and you stuck to that approach. I mean, for some of the kids that are listening, how often should you be changing your approach? Is it something you should be working with? Like, I know you probably shouldn't abandon it after one game if you, you know, maybe struck out twice. But but there's a, you know, there's a certain point in time where you, you kind of have to go back to the drawing board. And conversely, you do sometimes have to stay the path or stay the course, right? Yeah. Because there's moments that it, it is definitely working for you. Well, I think with, with starting with guys that played a lot, like guys that play every day, even early in my career, when I I did have a couple of years where I got 500 at bats, 
I kind of broke my bats down with 30 at bats at a time. You know, if, if I have 30 at bats where I know I go for 10, but I'm feeling pretty good at the home plate, but I'm just not getting hits, I'm not going to change my, I'm not going to change anything. There's no need to, even though because you're over 10, it's going to come around. And I, and I think that's what the problem is nowadays is that guys change their swings every day. You know, Cal Ripken Jr. did it every day. Yeah. And, and I think now is that uh, stick with it. You know, if, if you feel good in batting practice and you're hitting balls in batting practice, and I'll give you a quick story is when I played for the Blue Jays in 06, uh, 06 or 07, I changed my stance completely. You know, I went wide stance. I, I, I wanted to be able to come off the bench in 10 days and still have a timing. So I, they, they put me in a new stance. Didn't hit a home run in spring training. Didn't hit a home run all of April. My hitting coach, stay with it. Stay with it. It's going to come to you. So all of a sudden, you hit the home run. Next thing you know, you're hitting 20 home runs and 300 at-bats. It just takes some time. To, as long as you stick with it and as long as you feel comfortable in batting practice and, and your BP and your flips and your T-work, it's gonna it's gonna come over. So I I used to give like 30 or 40 at bats before I made a little bit of change changing my and I used to change my hands. If I thought my hands were too high, I would lower them a little bit and kind of cut out the momentum and the movement of my upper body. And that that's another big thing too was like again um, with with yourself obviously during the off season and kind of leading into spring training. Um, I know we talked about this before we jumped on, but again, um, for yourself, how, when was it that you basically turned it up to a hundred again after say a long season, again, 162 games in the big leagues, whether it's playing every day or playing every second day, it's still, it's still a taxing season. And then being in the playoffs, um, when did you really turn it back on? Well, early after I played a winter ball and I, and I actually did do something in the off season, um, I usually started probably the middle of January. That's when I would have, I would go to the, uh, I went to the high school up here at Fredericton High School. Uh, I had a couple of people that would throw Brooks Saunders, who his father and I are good friends and Brooks and I have known for years and years. He'd throw me BP in there. Uh, you know, it was just something to, for hitting for me, I always lost my strength in my hands. Yeah. And I wanted to build my strength back up in my hands. That was the biggest thing. And then all of a sudden later in my career, I didn't pick up a ball or bat. I use spring training as in training for spring training. And then I, I would, you know, from day one, it all started over again. You know, the 500 swings and getting the, the, the ballpark at 530 to 6 in the morning, getting your work in, getting your tee work in. Uh, and hitting coaches weren't very happy with me. But <laughs> trust me, after being a hitting coach, I understand that you're getting paid to help these kids. And if they have much there at 530 to 6 in the morning to hit up tee, you're going to be there and you're going to enjoy it. And I did. Um, and most hitting coaches were like me. They love hitting and didn't matter what time you were there. So I've had before where we played a game in Oakland and had a terrible game. And as soon as everyone left, I brought the cages up and took betting practice. So, you, you know, you're getting home at two in the morning. Wifey didn't like it too much, but I mean, that's just something that that's, it, it's, it's a feel good. You want to, I always say when you leave the ballpark, feel positive on something, you know, if, and I, I was always a guy that wanted to see as many pitches as I can. I know I'm getting away from your question though, but it's it's yeah. um, being positive when you leave the ballpark and, and working the counts and stuff. It, it helps you, gives you more success and it gives you less time to lose your timing. So I early early in January, later in my career, I didn't pick up a ball until spring training. And and part of that, I mean, just kind of the the you know figure out why some of that might have been. Was it for you? Did you require the mental break? Was it the physical break? Was there was there any specific reason that you? you waited till the end. I mean, lots of people have different reasons. Some people talk about baseball burnout. I mean, it's a real thing for you. What, what was the reason for that? I wanted to play hockey. <laughs> <laughs> the Canadian. Uh, no, you know, I think for me, it was, it was, I didn't think I'd need to go to the gym every day and, and take, you know, all these swings, you know, on the week. It just, to me, it was, if, if you can't hit soft toss in a cage, if you can't hit underhand or T work in a cage in January, pretty good chance you're not going to be able to find it by April. You know, that's, that was my, that was my thought process. So it was, I didn't say it was a waste of time. I thought it was just a, for me, and I'm just talking for myself. Um, it was just important for me to get close to spring training or into spring training to get my hands back in shape because major league ball players, you, you don't lose it very quick. You know, I went down and I worked with a guy in, uh, 
Travis Jankowski, who plays for the Cincinnati Reds and threw to him for a week just before he went to spring training. And that's all, all he needed. You go down there and work for five or six days and do some stuff. So um, sometimes you need a break. When I played the season in, in the major leagues or in the minor leagues and went to winter ball, you know, now you're looking at 800 at-bats in a year. Maybe mentally. But again, if, if you're swinging the bat ball, you have a great year in a winter ball and you have a great year in, during the summer. Why do you want to take time off? Yeah. You're feeling good about yourself. It's when you stink when you want to take time off. Just why and it's funny, and I'll give you a little when you when you don't when you feel bad in the batter's box, don't hit extra. Yeah. You're practicing bad things. That's when, yeah, bad. The, that's, when you, that's when you get out of the cage and say, Okay, now I'm gonna take a little break. But when you're swinging the bat well, continue doing it. If you start to stink, get out of there. Well, I'm not very smart, but I know I don't want to practice a bad swing. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard that pretty often. A coach will just tell a player if he's just having just the worst BP round, just, you know, kind of get out of the cage there and give your head a shake. Let somebody else get in, right? Absolutely. I had a kid when I was coaching the midget AAA team back in 2012. I threw him nine balls in BP. Swung and missed at all nine. I said, you want to go to the cage? He goes, no, I'm good. First the bat hits one over the light tire. I'm like, you're good. BP's <laughs> overrated. <laughs> And I think uh, the biggest thing, too, there, you just talked about it again. We go back to the point that everybody's different. Everybody has a different mentality. And um, obviously for you, it was it was a great mentality of knowing knowing exactly what you needed to do to be ready for when that season. Yeah. And how important is it today for the, for our kids, our athletes, whether it's somebody that's going to college ball, whether it's somebody going into their first year of pro, whether it's just a kid playing peewee, triple A or double A to really just understand why we play this game and have a good mentality and a positive mentality about the game going into a season. Well, I think it's very important. I think it's, it's, when you go into the season, it's, you know, you want to be positive, you know, and, and go with your eyes open saying that you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a very positive guy. I don't like being negative because I, I just, I despise it. You know, being a coach of hockey for many years in baseball, um, the other thing I do has to have a positive reason for it. And, you know, for one thing with kids is don't go into to a camp if, if it's college or whatever it's going to be, have an open mind. Mm -hmm. Just because you had success somewhere else doesn't mean it's going to carry over to an, another level, another team or another year. Um, one of the biggest things, and I think, Ryan, we talked about it earlier before you, you asked me when we were off camera was who helped me out a lot in my career? And who was the guy that really stepped up and took me under his wing? Mike McFarlane. And he gave me one of the best – I played with him in Boston Red Sox. He said, be seen, not heard. I'm like, what? I'm Canadian, dude. I'm supposed to talk. Be seen, not heard, meaning you watch, keep your mouth shut, and learn from the, from the big boys. And, and it, that's one thing that stuck with me all the time is just be seen, not heard. Watch these guys play and, and take in the, all the information that these guys are doing. Of course, I eventually became up the, the big mouth because I'm Canadian. And I love talking, but it's just that was a great advice that I, I watched the game, and that's how I got better. Yeah, I mean, and if you're playing baseball in, in any sport, it's not just baseball. As you, you you start to progress in your level of competition, you eventually start playing with people that have as much, if not more, experience than some yeah, of the absolutely. coaches that you're going to have, right? I mean, you learn from your peers. Everything yeah. else you do in life, you learn from your peers. I mean, your sports should be no different. And I think that's that's actually a great piece of advice. Well, think about it. If we're all teammates and, and, and we're all left-handed hitters, I don't know what you guys hit left or right, but if you're a left-handed hitter and I'm going to walk up to say, Ryan, to you and say, what's his ball doing? You're going to tell me he has a light cut on his fastball at the very end. A coach can't tell you that yeah. because the coach can watch it on video. It looks like everything on video that's thrown inside looks like it cuts a little bit, but they can tell you that, hey, he has that little bit of extra oomph on his fastball, which they call now spin rate, which has been around for a thousand years or a hundred years. Uh, but it, it's that late, like he's throwing a heavy ball, it's a late sink, you know, like, uh, doesn't matter who does Roy Holiday's fastball has late movement left and right, you know, so you got to stay on it a little longer. That's where you learn is from your teammates and having coaches are great. I love coaches and I was a coach and hopefully people learn from me, but it's, it's the players that are standing in that batter's box that see that ball coming in hundred miles an hour and being able to tell you which way it's moving and how late the fastball is cutting or what kind of bite he has on his curveball. You can get all that information you want. Oh, yes. Yeah, exit velocity is, is, is spin rate 23,300. 23, 
and he's got a negative nine. But I can't even think what it's called anymore. That's, that's <laughs> Chapman, you know. So yeah. it is what it is. But it's listen to your peers; they're your best hitting coaches as well. Yeah, and if for I mean, if you're a player right now, you know, it's coming up, and and you're you've got kind of a piece of advice to to stay on on that topic with your teammates. You're coming out of the box. I want to stay there. What is kind of the advice that you should be giving to your the next hitter that's coming in behind you? What's probably one of the best pieces of advice that you can be given to that next batter that's going to be coming into the plate? You mean I've fallen your at bat? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you have to keep it simple. You know what I mean? Like a lot of times you'll say, you know, uh, like Jason Giambi and I used to talk all the time when we were walking by each other and if we get out and it'd be, you know, late sinker, get them up, you know, or get them down the zone. Just something very simple to help you say, okay, this is what, when I step in the batter's box, if I say he has late movement, you know, all of a sudden now I don't want to move my hips too much when I, before I swing, or if, if the ball's getting on you a little quicker, which we used to say back in the day, which now is the exit, which is now the spin rate, uh, you knew that you had to be set a little earlier, you know, so it's, it's sneaky fast, um, you know, late movement, get him up in the zone, uh, you know, just simple little things because you don't. Last thing you want to do is give too much information to the guy walking up, and I was thinking, oh, this guy's got this, this, and this, and it's hard enough to get a hit. Now you got to think about stuff. So basically, just just simple little things that that help you out. Yeah, and I mean, like uh, at the end of the day, and I want to kind of again, we're going to transition a little bit, but I want to talk about your experience, um, and not even as a baseball coach, but as a hockey coach, and kind of the way that um, you approach an athlete, again, talking a very different sport, but just, again, talk about what you're giving them as advice, not on, not on the performance side or the sports side, but on the mentality side. And again, being a, being a high school hockey coach and having a love for that game as well as baseball, well, what's kind of your best advice for their mentality when they go out there before a game? Well, I guess it depends on what type of week we had in practice. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, listen, I think um, nowadays it's a little tougher as a coach when you when you see the, I don't know, I wouldn't say the commitment, but the, the being want to be the best player on the ice that, that drive mm -hmm. you. Uh, I always tell people well, every time you take the ice, just think it might be your last shift, might be your last time on the ice. And, and and don't take anything for granted. You know, I always said I wanted to walk from baseball when I was ready. So I didn't want to be looking over my shoulder and saying, okay, it's time to go because someone's coming. Um, and that's just, that's the, I keep it simple, but it's just, you know, when you take that ice, you know, you look around this room, you got 20, 20 family members, you know, and, um, you know, it's just, it's, you, I kind of, you have to keep it simple in hockey. Yeah. You really do. And any sport, you just keep a something, something positive, and something simple, and saying, "Okay, boys, every shift you don't take off. If you take off one shift, you're cheating your family in here." And they, they've, uh, you know, they, they did a nice job in that. Now we struggled at times, but I mean that's besides the point. But at least they went out and they gave hard every time. And at the end of the game, they were sore, you know, which you want to see out of players. Um, so again, you just kind of keep it simple. And I guess I was the nice coach. I didn't go in there and throw them <laughs> up and throw tables and stuff. <laughs> and for you, I mean, <laughs> no, of course not. Yeah, you were a, a two-sport athlete at a very high level. Obviously, you were on the Canadian national team as well for hockey uh, around the same time you were gone to Seoul for the Olympics. Yeah, we had. Uh, I got five percent on my thing. Damn. Um, I actually played for Team Atlantic. So Everett Santa Paul from uh, from down in Moncton. We played against Belleville Brewery and, and uh, Federoff. They came here and they went through the, the tour through here in New Brunswick. So I actually played a couple of games. That, that was the farthest I went. You know, I was I was too small at the time, but whatever. What is what it is. It worked out well. I'll be I'm happy. But uh, I had a chance to play against some some pretty good players and um, had a chance to represent New Brunswick for the for the tour. So it was Atlantic Canada, I should say. So it was a, it was a good time. But and did you have any one game for Montreal Canadiens? <laughs> okay. There you go. <laughs> did, and did you have any opportunities to play uh, hockey at a higher level, or was it just baseball kind of got there first and you followed that path? It was funny because when I signed a professional contract, everyone said, "Oh, who'd you sign hockey with?" I'm like, "No, baseball." I'm like, wait, you play baseball? 
<laughs> yeah, but it was, you know, I had I had some chances. Again, I ended up blowing my knee out and had surgery right after, uh, I guess, my grade 12 year. And then, um, who knows? I was small. I mean, I, if, I'm only 5'9", and I was 165 back in the day. I want to see what my weight is now, but... Um, you know, I was a small guy and I was fast, and that was the time they brought in Andrew McKim, a guy from St. John. It was between him and I, and, they, and the Boston Bruins drafted him. So I had a chance, didn't work out, played baseball, and it worked out pretty good. <laughs> Did it ever. So um, I'm actually going to, we're going to transition a little bit. We'll start getting into the questions as we wrap it up here, um, because we do have a couple of questions from a couple of our viewers. Um, I'm actually going to kick it off and start it off. So Scott Crawford, Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame, wanted me to ask you this. Of course so he, did. he said uh, the selfie with Fergie Jenkins on stage. He said, <laughs> ask Matt about that. Well, you know, everyone goes in. I got a question. If I lose you on this, can I go on my cell phone? Yes, definitely. All right. So I'm going to switch over to my cell phone right now. Can I switch at the same time? Yep, we can do that. Okay. The... Um, so the selfie with, with uh, yeah, you know how you get to those, well, you, you get to those things and everyone's uptight. They have this this letter out, what they're going to say and stuff. And, you know, you're sitting there, you're kind of sweating and you're like, oh, okay, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? And I thought the break of the ice was I got Fergie Jenkins and I, we just turned around. And I just took a selfie with him, got the crowd <laughs> laughing. And next thing you know, you just relax. And I never was the type of guy that wrote anything down. You know, I've been very fortunate to, to be in the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame. You know, the, the New Brunswick Hall of Fame, the Atlantic Canada Hall of Fame, whatever. But, but I just, I'm, I'm me. I can get up there and talk to the wall and get the conversation. So it was, it was for me, it was a relaxing time to get up there and, and take a selfie with Fergie. And he didn't know what the hell I was doing. No. You know? And I was worried because I thought my cut was going to be too tight. Because <laughs> I was like, last time I tied this on, I was a little skinnier. But that was a, that was, that was a fun time. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, I'm glad we got that in. And hopefully Scott and the guys from the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame are watching so that they got their question answered from you. So um, one question we had from uh, one of our uh, members, actually, of Premier Sports Academy um, was, is there a pitcher you felt you had consistent trouble hitting? And if so, how did you work through that? Yeah, I, I knew that question was coming. And this is, to <laughs> me, it's the easiest question. Everyone's like, Okay, Pedro Martinez and Roger Clemens, I didn't have great success against, but I did get a hit off of them or two. The guy by the name of Arthur Rhodes, who uh, was a big, tall, left-handed pitcher, threw really hard in the minor leagues. I was 0 for 18. And everyone's like, well, that's, you know, 0 for 18. No, that's 0 for 18 years. 18 <laughs> years I didn't get a hit off that guy. So I was in the minor leagues, and he struck me out four times in one game. We turned around, we played them again five days later. He struck me another four times. So I was 0 for 8 with eight punches. And he just was that type of guy that he would throw right from his ear, so he's hiding the ball. And I couldn't pick it up. He had a great curveball, and he threw about 96. So it got to the point where I finally got in the big leagues, and I, and I knew I was going to face him. But it was a comfortable at bat. But I couldn't get a hit. I stunk. So he used to tell me a fastball was coming. I'd take a swing, and I'd hit the elevator shaft. He'd tell me a curveball was coming, and I'd roll over to first base. So I, we were just like, okay, whatever. So he'd come in from the bullpen and he'd come and face me and he'd look at me and smile. And I'm like, I just dropped my head. And I'm like, damn, okay, I'll, I got my bat. I know what he's going to do. And I just couldn't get a hit. So finally I get a hit against him in Seattle, hit the ball to left field. I had a pen in my pocket. For some reason, I thought I was getting a hit. I had a marker in my pocket. I walked to the mound and asked if he signed the ball and he was pissed. <laughs> he was bitter. But he's just one guy I couldn't I couldn't get a hit. I couldn't square the ball up. I just couldn't find the hole. Uh, I had a pretty good approach. It just didn't work out. And I guess staying on that topic, is there certain types of pitchers that you actually uh, enjoyed hitting off? Rather, a, not a name, but just a, a righty, lefty, a certain arm slot, a certain velo. Is there just something every time you saw a person's name on the board, you're like, okay, yes, today's a great day for me. This type of pitcher I love to, yeah. to hit knuckleball. against. I love knuckleballers. I love knuckleballers, and I love the guys that had good sinkers. Because to me, a, a good sinker was probably the best pitch to to pull. Yeah. Now all of a sudden, the sun comes out the window, and it's driving me crazy. <laughs> but that, that for me, I love I love facing knuckleballers because I didn't have to think. You know, you, you just get up there and you saw the knuckleball, and you just swung out of your shoes and see what. Well, not that I didn't do that anyway, but it's just something. There was nothing you had to work. You didn't have to think about anything, yeah. which, was, which was great. And sinker ballers to me were. 
it was a great way for me to use my top hand and be able to drive the ball. I thought for me, the, the best ball for me to pull as a left-hander was a, was a sinker down the way in the zone was the easiest pitch for me to pull the right center for a home run. People are like, what? I'm like, that's just, it was a pitch for me that I could hit that I enjoyed. Fair enough. Um, there's a, another question here. Is there such a thing as too many swings in one BP session? Never. Never. And people say, well, you're going to get tired. The more swings you take, your body gets tired. Your hands don't get tired. So I was always a firm believer that the, the, the more tired I got hitting-wise, the more I end up using my hands and using my barrel more. I took my body out of it, which I wanted to do anyway. I wanted to use my hands. So when I was taking my swings and batting practice, I got tired. Now I knew it was time for me to start using my hands, and that's when I concentrated on my hands and my forearms. And that's where I ended up driving the ball a little better. So I used to hit 10 minutes by myself every day on the field before we did early BP, which we did every day. Because I wanted to get tired and get out of that, you know, using your body too much. The more body you use, the slower your, your swing is. So I wanted to tire my body down and start using my hands so I can start trying to, you know, pepper the stands or hitting the ball hard. That's great advice. I guess if the coach's arms tired, I guess that's the point where maybe it's too many BPs. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's a that's a feel thing too, right? I mean, you hear lots of different guys talk about it, where they take you know a lot of swings every day, but they kind of they taper it back or ramp it up based on how they're feeling. Like you get in the cage early in the day, and you just feel like you're on, and everything is there, right? It's you know you, you feel comfortable with your approach for that day versus Absolutely. if you're not feeling good, you might you might have to work a few things out. Again, you might not be in the cage with a bad swing, but you're down doing flips or doing T work to try to figure out what's not working right now. That's where you want to find stuff out. That's if you're not feeling well taking batting practice in the field, but then do soft toss. That's where you lock it in. You know, that's where you get in there and you get your timing back down, you get your direction. You know, and what it is, it's just is that your lower halves are too quick. I'm opening up too quick, my bat's dragging, and I'm not I'm not clipping it right. So you do your soft toss, you get back into hitting the ball, you know, back up the middle, and all of a sudden it just takes one swing. You know, for me it was one swing. I stepped in the batter's box, I didn't feel well. I could take a swing and something just clicked. And go there it is, and it was usually a foul ball straight back to the batter's box, you know, the batter's eye or whatever the, the screen. That's where I kind of locked it in. Uh, it wasn't because of one swing, you know, hit the ball home run or something, because you get lucky and still feel like crap. But it's just something that uh, it, it clicks. It comes and goes. Hitting, like I said, hitting's easy. It's just getting hits is so hard. I just want. You were just you want, doing you know, whatever? Were you doing your? Were you doing front toss or flip from the side, just like a coach flipping from the side? What was your preferred method? Front, uh, to me, there's the, the purpose of doing a side toss. There's no, I don't see why third baseman's not throwing you a pitch. First baseman's <laughs> right. not throwing you a pitch. You know, I want everything coming from the center coming towards me, and I don't like overhand. I like the overhand toss this way. You know, that's the direction of coming down. I don't want something coming up. You know, I'm not playing a slow pitch or whip pitch or whatever it is. I'm playing baseball. I want this here with the rotation of the ball coming in this way so I can reverse the spin. But if I'm hitting soft toss underhand, to me, it's just – it's to me, me personally, it's a waste of time because I'm not doing that in a game. And I guess staying, staying right there, I mean, in your professional career, you played, you know, nearly 20 years of professional baseball. I mean, how many times did you use a pitching machine to do BP? <laughs> Uh, a lot. A lot? So what were you lot. using it for? High yeah. spin rate up top of the zone. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, so you had a specific purpose for it. Yes. And I never hit on the field with it. I always hit in the cage. So if I knew that yeah. I wasn't being able to catch up to a fastball, my body was in my swing too much, we'd crank the fastball up the machine to whatever it would be, 100, 105, and then it would just make you move your hands and move your hands a lot more and shorten your swing up. So I did it. I did enough. I didn't want to do it yeah. very much because that means I was struggling. So, yeah. and then with broadcasting their phone. All right, one sec. We'll we'll change it over here. There we go. There we go. Sorry, Sorry guys. No, no worries. Sweat. Can you hear still? Oh yeah. And then with with T work, I mean, we're really. I mean, there was something that happened. For, I guess not happened, but there was a, a program that used to run in Canada for a long time. The hit, run, and throw. Uh, which actually I, I feel like for me as a young kid is my development. It was that first introduction to doing something competitive with baseball. And right. it, it, it emphasized a lot of T work. 
And I feel like over the last probably 10 or 15 years, a lot of tea work is, has kind of gone away with a lot of kids do not understand how to use the tea anymore. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of, of using the tea with, with training? Yeah. And I don't, I, and I won't say that the kids don't know, you know, the purpose of using it. I'll say that the, I'll blame it on the coaches. The coaches aren't okay. teaching the purpose of why doing it. It's easy to blame a child or a kid on hitting up sure. the tea. Uh, Good point. If they're not taught. So if you're a type of hitter, and let's say that you struggle hitting a ball that's middle in. Inner half is your tough pitch. That's where you start with the T work. So it's easy to go to your strength right away and work back to your weakness. Let's start on your on your strength on your weakness first to fix that swing. You know, so now all of a sudden you're setting the T in. And again, everything you do off a of T is left center, right center. So if I'm setting the T up inner half or inner third or black or black in off. I'm still trying to work my hands to hit that ball back up to the right center. As a left-handed hitter now. As a righty, of course, I'm trying to hit that ball to left center. And I'm, I don't want guys, when they hit off a tee, is that you think you have to kind of guide it through the zone. I want you attacking the baseball with a normal swing. The thing that helped me a lot was I hit off a tee with a, with a fungo because it gave you that little bit of extra bat speed. You know, and again, I think what a lot of times guys do is they kind of get that swing, they kind of carve the swing and try to baby it or guide it through the zone instead of just getting that point and driving it through the zone. And that's one thing I, I love the tee work. Again, uh, Travis Jankowski with the Reds, he never hit off the tee before. Now he loves it. It's part of his routine of saying, you know, I, I like it as well because you can see the flight of your baseball. You know, I don't like hitting off a tee and into a screen that's four foot, four feet away. If that's the case, and if I'm hitting, say, into the TV to you guys, if, if I'm a left-handed hitter, I want my – got to figure this out. I want my screen over here. So I yeah. want to hit at an angle going this way into the T. that makes sense? Helps you yeah. stay inside the baseball. And it's the same thing as, as hitting off a tee in a cage. Pick a spot at the back of the wall and try to hit it. You know, I was a firm believer of taking T work onto the field and this is just me personally. I want to try to hit home runs off a tee at home plate. So that's that, that's to me. The t I think to me the tee work is probably the most important thing because you can establish a good swing over and over and over in an area where you repeat your swing over and over and over. Where in soft toss you might flip one over, you might hook one, you might top one, you might get underneath one. But in tee work, you have to concentrate so hard of staying inside that baseball and continue driving the baseball where you just kind of, it's a muscle memory of remembering your swing over and over and over. And just one last little point on the tee. Were you picking up a spot on the back wall to kind of mimic a pitcher throwing the ball, then transferring your eyes to the tee, or were you staying locked on the tee? It's a great point. It's a good question. I was always a firm believer if I wanted to look at the pitcher, track it back, look at the ball, then swing. You know, and I always thought, was well, that right? Mark McGuire, who was our bench coach a couple of years ago and a teammate of mine for a few years, he did the exact same thing. He says, why do you want to sit there and just look at the tee and swing from there? Why not get in the habit of tracking back to the ball and then going for your swing? So a good point. I, I like tracking because it just makes you change your eyes back to the plate and then go ahead and swing. But I will say this. Thanks. One thing one thing about tee work is that you can do all the tee work you want. You can do all the, you know, trying to find guys on the internet. If you pull up Tony Gwynn Jr. or I'm sorry, Tony Gwynn, and watch his tee work, you won't have to watch another video, because he teaches. He teaches what he teaches. Hitting off the off a tee is remarkable. It really is, and that's one of the guys who, who we became really good friends in my career, and we talked about hitting all the time. And he taught me about hitting off the tee and work with your your weakness to start to go to your strengths. Then all of a sudden you go on the internet and some guys say, no, this is how you get off a tee. You don't do it this way. And they're like, okay, Tony Gwynn was wrong, I guess. But if you watch Tony Gwynn hit off a tee and the way he explains hitting off a tee, you won't need to watch another video. So that's definitely good. I hope our viewers take that and they go out to YouTube and actually look up some stuff on Tony Gwynn and find, find those videos guys. Uh, and hopefully they take that advice. Um, so we'll move on to another question. Uh, I guess a couple of people had similar questions, but uh, it goes back to uh, the Expos. So uh, two-parter. Um, how did you feel about the lockout, even though you didn't finish the 94 season with the Expos, but 
again, uh, they say at the end of it, terrible day for Expos fans. Uh, yes, it definitely was. Um, and then do you think Montreal will ever get another Major League Baseball team? Well, the strike was a terrible thing for baseball. Mm-hmm. It was even worse than Montreal because Montreal at the time, I think they took a four-game series and they took the lead over the Atlanta Braves, playing extremely well, had a um, – that's probably the best they've played in a long, long time. And of course the strike happens and it, you know, whatever. Um, so I wasn't around for that. I think I was in 94 was I, I was in triple a yeah. uh, with the Red Sox. Um, so it was a tough time. I, unfortunately, I think it ruined baseball. Never really bounced back after that in Montreal. Mm-hmm. And a lot of team players, great players like Larry Walker, by the way, congratulations for the hall of fame. Um, they got moved. Do I think a team will ever go back to Montreal? Oh, I don't know. Because I think a lot of teams are wanting to go to Vegas. Yeah. I mean, Vegas seems like the place to go now with the with the industry and with the hockey and the football now. And now all of a sudden, if they can get a Major League Baseball team in. So, I don't I, – I would love to see it. Because I loved going back to Montreal and playing. It was a blast. And I know players love going to Montreal. Um, so – I, I, I hope so. I, I don't think so, but I hope so. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of us out there, again, uh, some of our viewers that were uh, actually got the chance to watch Montreal Expos play and uh, play again in uh, the actual stadium in there and uh, just in a great city. So um, what was your favorite park to hit in? Another question from somebody here. Uh, most home runs I hit uh, it was just something that I, when I stepped in the batter's box, it had a, a great batter's eye. Uh, the fence wasn't very far. It didn't seem like. Uh, I think that's probably where I had the most home runs. Um, probably easier for me to tell you I did not like it in Chicago. Chicago, to me, is a small ballpark. Um, as a hitter, I step in the batter's box, and I see too many <laughs> fielders where you hit in Colorado, and it's like four miles from left field to right field. And you see no one playing defense, you get a lot of confidence. So I think Baltimore was probably my best place to hit for power-wise. Colorado was a great place for average-wise, and I had good numbers there. The Sky Dome, Toronto, I hit very well in Toronto. So I, really, three places I didn't hit well was probably Washington, Anaheim, and Chicago Cubs. Everywhere else, I did all right. Did you, um, I guess – uh, staying with with those fields, is there any is there any particular field uh, that you know when you when you're playing there? I, I'm trying to talk about the fans more so, but the, just the atmosphere that made it difficult to play. And is there a certain stadium you're like, geez, we're playing here tonight? Like I, I hate playing here or anything like that. White Sox, brutal. Like it was just you know you play in Yankee Stadium, you play right field, they're right, yeah, whatever. It is it's funny, whatever. But Chicago White Sox didn't stop it didn't stop like it's i got you it was amazing how I, they thought i was on slim slow i wasn't on slim fast i was on slim slow um it was it was crazy it was the amount of non-stop harassment ragging every family member you name it just it was no holds bar um uh, again getting ragged in the field is kind of cool because it means you must have been pretty good they didn't say anything. You're like, I suck. Um, <laughs> Yankee Stadium was pretty good because I used to pass those sheets when you walk into the gate and say, okay, right field is Matt Stairs. Here's his information. Have fun. The only time playing in the Yankee Stadium was really fun was when Jose Canseco was playing right field and they're throwing them batteries at him. They used to fill up bottles of pee and throw pee bottles at him. Uh, I mean, he used to turn around and flip the fans off. And then, of course, he just, you know, whatever. The batteries started flying and I think they brought in the Jose Canseco, no more alcohol in right field there. But, but there's, you know, let's face it, fans are great. They're fun. But the, the ragging gets tired. You know, they, you're fat. Okay, yeah, I am. So what? What else? Like, you got a mullet. Okay, well, I'm trying to bring it back. So what? You know, I remember a guy yeah. in San Francisco says, oh, you're no, you're no uh, Barry Bonds. <laughs> no kidding. That's a good one, dude. Like, come on. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, I, I used to have fun with it and, you know, and actually in, lot, in Chicago, I used to meet a lot of guys afterwards in, at, at the front of the bar across the street and used to buy them drinks. <laughs> That's awesome. 
Is there, I mean, I guess now we're just kind of getting close to the end. I don't know if you've got another question, Noah, but it's just something that I wanted to jump into. Yeah, I've just got uh, one big question for me. Who's your hockey team? Montreal Canadiens. Okay, I figured that, but I just wanted to reaffirm that. Yeah. And this, this 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 coronavirus is killing me because all they're showing is the Toronto Maple Leafs, all the games and all the games that win. Like, come on. <laughs> Didn't, how could they don't show them? Montreal beat them every game this year. I know Montreal wasn't going to make the playoffs, but we had to brag about something. But I'm a I'm a happy fan. I'm a hockey fan. Yeah. I watch I watch at least three games a night. So it's 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 tough right now. I thought about jumping in that water a few times, but this is <laughs> this virus is. And I know there's other reasons why you should be pissed off with the virus, but my hockey season's important. <laughs> oh yeah. And I can, I can no, imagine I, some of our viewers have the same uh, sentiment. Uh, Hockey is big here on the rock as well. So, I haven't been, been to Newfoundland since I was 16. Yeah, I remember you were playing sports. I was playing, I was playing hockey over there when I was 16 years old. Came over, and I actually been trying to get over there the last few years to come over and try to put on a clinic. So, I think no, I mentioned to you about maybe going over sometime this summer or towards the end of summer and, and putting on a big clinic. So, stay tuned. Oh yeah. yeah, we got a place. There, there's a place here where you can you can run one for sure. There you go. <laughs> uh, for me, I just want to you know something. I've asked a few guests. A few guests we've had on now have you know made the decision recently to retire or you know kind of finished their their athletic careers. Um, what was that decision like for you? I mean, we talk about right now with with the pandemic. There's a lot of kids that haven't actually you know might be the last time they played competitive ball. Their college sure. season is over. They, they, yeah. Their contract might not be picked up. Like you know. Were you thinking about life after baseball, um, you know, towards the end the whole time, or is it something you just kind of went with the flow on? I mean, what was that? What was that whole decision process like for you? Well, I retired at the end of 2010 uh, when I was with the Padres. Uh, I ended up having an offer to go to the to spring training with the Washington Nationals, and I didn't play a whole lot in the spring training, you know. But I pinched hit, and I don't know how many home runs I hit pinch hitting. I hit a quite a few. And I made the team, and I'm like, oh, this is nice, you know. I'm getting a chance. I still feel good. Um, and then all of a sudden, it came down to the point where I never played. And it's tough to be a pinch hitter when you never play. So I think halfway through the season, I think I had like 60-some at-bats. And I'm like, okay, it's it's getting close. I'm not enjoying it anymore. And it, probably the first time in my life uh, in, you know, 20, well, including minor leagues, 23 years of pro ball, I didn't enjoy going to the rink or the ballpark, sorry. And uh, I always enjoy going to the rink. Um, I didn't enjoy going to the ballpark. And I knew the day they called me in and said that I was being put on waivers. Um, I said, thank you. It is time. Uh, called my agent, said uh, I got put on waivers and you got let go. I said, well, I got three or four offers for you. I said, no, I'm done. And that was the time where I knew it was time for me to walk away. And I never thought about it. I walked away after I had an opportunity to go somewhere else. And I walked away from my own you know, my own decision and no regrets, zero. Yeah. And then afterwards I said, I'd like to get into broadcasting and I got into broadcasting for four years and, and I enjoyed that. And then I wanted to be a coach. I did that for two years. Um, and then it's just, uh, I still want to get back into coaching, but it's, it's hard right now. You know, I enjoy coaching. I really do. And that's why I took over the senior program here in Fredericton, the Fredericton Royals to try to you know, have some, some fun with that. And, um, but again, I have three daughters, you know, a wife of 30 years and three daughters. And now I have my first granddaughter coming in May. So it's, I had a chance to go to Germany this summer to go coach over there. Nice. And, uh, I just, you know, first granddaughter coming, I'm, I'm not leaving that one. That's I'm staying home for there. I'm staying home for her. But, uh, but question, I just, I never knew you. I never really, uh, I just, my mindset, my kids and my wife were so tremendously supportive. And then when I walked away, they knew it was time for me to walk away and, it was it was simple for me. And I know, unfortunately, some players have a hard time with it, but man, I was forty three years old. Whatever, it was, I should have retired when I was thirty five, probably. But I stuck around and had some fun, and I enjoyed it and met some new people. So awesome! No, listen, uh, Matt, we really appreciate your time. Um, yeah, you know, sure. coming on and 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 having a chat with us. You know, the kids, everyone's looking for something right now. This is a kind of a hard time for everyone, so. You know, it, it really means a lot. You taking some time out of your day to talk to our to our athletes, so we really no, no, appreciate it. No, I appreciate it too. Now, all I can say right now is, even though there's downtime, there's nothing to do, but watch some videos. 
just go around the YouTube and find some guys and, and, and find some people that you enjoy listening to talk where, because I think nowadays they make it very difficult understanding the swing path. And I'm talking only hitters because I'm not a pitcher and I'm not a, you know, I think they're not, no. <laughs> just find the hitters where you understand what's going on and study the, study the swings. And that's really the only thing you can do right now. But again, when the coaches get back up and you start doing your academies and stuff, it's, it's, you know, Work with the soft toss, work with the T work, have these guys work left center, right center, new swing, old swing, it doesn't matter. If you think about driving the ball through the middle infielders, that's how you get the ball in the air properly. If I have to think about getting my elbow into my slot, by the time I get in my slot, I'm too late. So let's bring back old school baseball, please. <laughs> but listen, I appreciate you guys having me on. I really enjoyed this. Anytime you need me on there to talk about baseball, I'll talk about hitting for another hour or two. I love it. Awesome. So, no. Awesome. Best of luck. Yeah, we really so appreciate it. Again, Bye thanks, guys. Matt. And uh, we'll be in touch. And thanks for everybody that watched, guys. And we'll see you guys next time. Thanks again. Go Habs. Cheers. See you, boys. <laughs> see ya.